0: keep your bibles open to uh, hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 and if um, you're in person there's a hand up for you to follow on on what's being said or if you're online there's also a hand up for you to to following along great the the question and the topic that we're considering uh, this lunchtime uh, is this how much does it matter if I grow dull and stop listening to Jesus? Let me tell you about three of my friends. Uh, the first friend is called Dan. Uh, then he was baptized about six years ago. But over in the recent, recent years, he's faced a real crisis about his own identity and his place in the world. And his solution to deal with um, that whole issue was to step away from church, uh, to close his Bible, and to stop listening. Uh, does it doesn't matter if I take a break and stop listening to Jesus. Uh, my second friend is called Ed. Ed He enjoys listening to uh, God's word, but he also enjoys listening to the world. And his worry is that he, he doesn't want to be too invested in something. So he looks at his colleagues. Uh, they're all quite well-rounded individuals, and so he, he doesn't want to fully invest in something. And so does it matter if I straddle listening both to God's word and to the world? My third friend is um, someone called, I guess, Carrie. Um, For for most of her life, she has been a Christian. And as far as she she can remember, she was in church in her mother's belly. And she's been through the whole process, you know, Sunday school when she was young. She went to camps when she was a teenager. She went to CU when she was in uni. Uh, she even married a christian guy and now as a a city worker she tries to to be a christian worker but in the recent years she has grown a bit dull Um, the truths of the bible it seems all too familiar and she can almost predict what the preacher will say next well how much does it matter if i grow dull and i stop listening to jesus well, I wonder whether you can identify with any of my friends, uh, maybe you've been a Christian for many years, 10, 20, 30, 40 years and things get a bit repetitive, a bit old, a bit dull. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a couple of years and things are already getting a bit dull. Or maybe you might not call yourself a Christian today and uh, that's okay, uh, why don't you just listening, uh, consider what's being said and we can discuss after. And perhaps some might say that, well, it actually does not matter. In fact, actually stopping to listen to Jesus, it could be really useful. And the logic kind of goes like this, you know, the, if you stop listening, you can be more neutral, more impartial, and less biased. It's a bit like what my friend is saying, uh, Ed, he's worried about having tunnel vision. So you listen to other voices, uh, you become more balanced uh, more neutral than how you think. And so it is not uncommon uh, to to hear someone say, you know, when I first believed, uh, perhaps I was less thoughtful then, or less exposed to the world. Uh, So, you know, when you stop listening to Jesus, well, it could be a good thing. That makes you more balanced, more neutral as an individual. And it's into this situation that author he writes uh, the letter of Hebrews. Uh, You see these readers, they were probably Christians in Rome, and they have been Christians for the past 20, 30 or 40 years since they heard the gospel and initially they were very zealous. Uh, they were there living the, the life for Jesus. But then the truth got a bit old, got a bit repetitive and a bit dull. So does it matter? Uh, does it matter? Well what our author wants to say today or maybe uh, maybe more accurately uh, what God is saying today is that it really, matters it really really matters and so our author he gives us two warnings and the first warning is this it really matters because it will result in immaturity i look at verse 11 of chapter 5 about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of god you need milk not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness since he is a child the image that our author wants to have in our minds is that of a child a baby an infant a baby who's sucking on the milk bottle this whole world comprising of milk sleep pooping and peeing. It's a baby. It's a child. It's an infant. And that is the author's description of someone who stops listening to Jesus. Uh, you may have climbed the cropped ladder. You may have done very well in the eyes of the world. But in spiritual things, a baby, unable to stomach weighty things. When he con- only concerned about food, Leisure, work, and the day-to-day comforts. But notice how that contrasts the mature individual. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish the good from evil. And so here's something to chew over. See, we think perhaps uh, where we stop listening to Jesus, we get more neutral a more balance, we have more perception of the world. But what our author is saying is the opposite. The less you listen, the more immature you become. Why is that the case? I think previously the author he, he describes the problem, and not so much with what we hear, but rather with our anatomy. The problem is with our hearts, our minds, our receptors, how we receive information, they are deceitful. So his suggestion is that our hearts, being left to ourselves, are deceived. Uh, being left to ourselves, we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are unable to distinguish good and evil, unable to stomach weighty things. And so I think all of us here today, uh, we don't live in a vacuum. There's no neutral zone. We are either being more deceived or more discerning. It's a hardened heart or a soft heart. And so listening is the only way to move from a hard heart to a soft heart. It's the only way to move from immaturity to maturity. So how much does it matter? Well, far from becoming more impartial, our author is saying that it will leave us immature, lacking discernment. That's good food for thought. Um, That's what the author say. Does it hold true? It's worth chewing over, but again, more than just immaturity. Also, he really raises the stake because, secondly, uh, it will result in us being burned. I point to it will result in being burned. Uh, Look at verse four of chapter six. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Well, these verses, I guess it's a really difficult passage, and it's difficult not because it's hard to understand, but it's difficult because it's hard to stomach. I mean, the language is particularly strong, but those who have been enlightened yet choose to spurn the Son of God, cannot be restored. It is impossible. Perhaps the image that we are meant to have in our heads is Judas in the Gospel narrative, who drank from the same cup, who saw the same miracles, who heard the same teaching, who had his feet washed by the Creator God himself, and then to have walked away. It is impossible for him to be restored. The 6, and then to a fallen way, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. I mean, there is no stronger image. It is the re-crucifixion of Jesus. It's a really strong language. And I suppose for us, what does it mean? It means to, I guess, experience forgiveness, to experience the weight of guilt and shame being lifted, to benefit from the work of the Holy Spirit, to experience transformation in your life, to taste the word of God, its intellectual coherence, its day-to-day relevance, and to take all those privileges, to hold it up, to bundle it up, and to chuck it away. It is impossible to be restored. And the outcome, uh, the outcome is really terrifying. Look at verse 7. For land that has drawn the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to be cursed, and its end is to be. you see the author uses really hard words um, on his readers and so his readers they, they think as they stop listening to Jesus it is no big deal it makes them more discerning if you broaden out but the author's point is the opposite if you stop listening you will not be fruitful you will not produce a crop but more than that you will be worthless you will be burned. I used to live in a place um, when I first came to London, where there was a garden, but you need to understand I'm Singaporean, I'm clueless when it comes to garden. And so I left it there, it was green and luscious when I first arrived. And six months down the road, it was brown uh, with weeds coming up roughly to my height. There's a green bush right in the middle that turned brown. And at one point, um, I, I said, Okay, I've got to do something about it. And I spent a whole afternoon, Cutting all the weeds down and plucking up the, the bush. And what did I do? I, I just burn everything. I'm not sure whether that's legal, but that's what I did. I burned all of it in the garden. And then there was a big, big flame, and the neighbors came out to look. Uh, but shockingly, that is the image uh, that the author is using, uh, being, being burned. It's a really strong image. And that is the final outcome for those who hold the Son of God to contempt. Uh, Its end is to be burned. And not just ashes into nothingness, but hell and judgment. Its end is to be burned. So we understand why the author is warning them, because it really matters. It really matters if we stop listening to Jesus. I'm really conscious that this passage uh, is very uncomfortable, and I hope I'm not saying more than what the author is saying. Uh, but please let me be clear, and let's be clear what the author is not saying. What he's describing is not uh, the day to day Christian life. It is not describing the battle with sin that all Christians face. It is not about the common stumble. It is not, falling. It's not about falling back into an old habit. What he's describing here is a total disregard for the Son of God. It is holding Jesus to contempt, it is rejecting him altogether. And so it is true, for those who reject the Son of God, there is no salvation for anyone who does so. I guess the other question that uh, most of us might have in our heads is, well, does this mean that a Christian can lose his salvation? And I'm conscious that this question may not just be a theoretical question that you have in your head, but it could be a really personal one. Uh, You may know someone, uh, perhaps to have seen, to have fallen away. But I think it's worth being clear that our author, he is not answering that question, whether a person can fall away or not. You see, the author, he's writing to a mixed congregation, uh, different people at different stages. He is not describing a specific individual, or rather in order to encourage faithfulness. think of it this way Um, imagine there's a big warning sign that says stay clear uh, fire warning and the warning sign it's silent on any of us whether you or you or you would heed the warning Uh, the warning sign is not describing how we would respond the warning sign is a warning so it's silent on whether you on how you will respond but the warning sign is very loud on its warning it is saying stay clear Uh, don't come close there's fire. So can a Christian lose his salvation? Well, the author's not describing that or not even answering the question. The bigger question that he wants us to consider is this. Are you heeding his warning? Is there an appropriate sense of fear? Does the warning make you worry and turn to Jesus and cling on to him? Or alternatively, have you grown dull? Have you become hard of hearing? Have you grown cynical? Well, maybe there might be one or two of you in the room or on the call who has grown dull in hearing the voice of Jesus. And so if you have tasted the goodness of Jesus, and yet you are choosing to ignore him, it's a really dangerous place that you are in. Please don't play with fire. It really matters. Again, it's not easy to speak about these passages, um, but I think after a warning, after having two warnings, our author, he turns to two encouragements. Um, I think we would not have time for the third encouragement, but let's jump to the fourth encouragement, uh, which is instead of not listening, uh, rather to imitate Abraham's faith. And so the author, he wants us to imitate the person of Abraham, and he goes to the person of faith uh, to inspire us to have faith, um, and he uses Abraham as the key example. Uh, So if you were here last year when we looked at uh, our Genesis series, uh, you might remember Abraham. So consider Abraham, uh, 100 years old, with a wife who was 90 years old, and a wife who was barren. And it's scientific that a hundred year old barren parents don't have kids. But in spite of the signs, God, he offers two assurances to Abraham that he will have a son. He makes a promise to him and he seals that promise with an oath. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. A God, he he swore to men. Uh, if you think about that, it's pretty unnecessary for, for God to, to swear to men. But that's what he does. You know, people, we, we swear by something uh, really precious. And you might say, I swear my, my mother's grave. I don't say that, but you know, you hear people say that. But God here, He swears on Himself, and there's nothing greater for Him to swear on. And so as Abraham he waits patiently um, and he obtains the promise, it becomes an example for all of us to follow. But maybe I think the author is doing a bit more than just providing Abraham as, a, as an example. Maybe what he's doing, he is plugging us into a wider narrative, a bigger story. See, because having faith in Jesus in the 21st century London is much bigger than your own experience with Christianity. Uh, we shrink the story to being brought by church by our parents when we were younger or by, brought by, uh, brought to church by a friend, or we shrink the story about this country having a Christian history. You see, the story that you become part of, if you have faith in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus, uh, it stretches much further back into history. See, this is God's master plan to put the whole world right through the offspring of Abraham. It's a Jewish hope. It's a hope, also the hope for the world. And so his promise and his oath um, is there to put this whole world right, to reverse the curses of the fall, to restore this world. And so he wants us to imitate Abraham's faith because you're now part of a much bigger story, to expand the narrative of what you're involved in. It's not primarily about you. It is kind of about you, but not primarily about you. I'm hearing the gospel from someone. Uh, It's true. But it's you being part of this wider story um, ever since the beginning. So imitate his faith. And it's not just a bigger story that's linked to the past. There's assurance in the present. See, Abraham, he obtained his promise. Uh, in some form, he obtained life from dead bodies, from him and his wife, Isaac. But we have obtained the promise. We have obtained life from a dead body, Jesus. I look at verse 19. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on the behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author gives us two images to kind of solidify what we have in Jesus in our minds. The first is the anchor. I think of a big ship in the midst of a raging tempest, swirled around, tossed to and fro by huge waves. And it's anchor securing the ship down, fastening it secure, keeping it steady. Uh, That is Jesus securing us down, keeping us safe to himself, keeping us steady. You see, it doesn't make the journey less bumpy. Uh, we are steered up and down with the waves, but it's secure. But not just holding us secure, uh, he is also bringing us in. Uh, that is the language of the forerunner, the one who runs before us. So where he goes, we go. Where he enters, we enter. We are connected, united joined by faith into him. And so where he goes into the inner place, we go with him. And that is why we need to keep listening, because only when we listen can we respond in faith. And faith is what connects us to Jesus. Think about the rope which connects the boat to the anchor. Faith is what connects us to our anchor, the forerunner. So when we hear, we respond in faith. Hold fast in faith, because faith connects us to Jesus. And if you stop listening to God's promises, you cannot respond in faith. There's nothing left connecting you to Jesus, no one to bring you through death, no one to keep you safe. Again, how much does it matter if I stop listening? I think the author wants to say, it really matters. It really does matter. Well, there are two ways to respond to God's voice today. One with a hardened heart, one that's dull of hearing, uh, one that's pulling back to say that, oh, I know these truths already. uh, It's the same old fire and brimstone message. Well, that's the well-used pressure tactic. uh, That's a hard heart, dull of hearing, and pulling back. But the second way, is to respond in faith to lean in and to listen to run to jesus to cling to him in faith and i guess the question first this lunchtime is this how will we respond how will we respond